Hello, church. Grace and peace. Good to be back with you. Today is the season finale for our Mysterious Messiah series. And by the way, guys, this has been a phenomenal series, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. If you've loved this series, will you let us know in the comment section? You know, particularly the reason why I like this series so much is the providential nature of this series. When we planned this series, we planned this series to come out of the Explore God series where we were answering questions about Christianity. And so we wanted to introduce the people that were tracking with us to the person of Jesus during Lent season, and we had no idea that we would be in the middle of this pandemic. And so this series has brought a lot of comfort and a lot of meaning to people asking questions about suffering and pain during this season. And, and, and it's been phenomenal. That's been phenomenal to see. Yeah, for me, I think it has been how this series has really taught me a lot personally. You know, co-teaching with you all has been a joy because I've been able to to learn and to see uh, Christ in a fresh way through your perspectives as God uh, speaks to you through his word and being able to hear that every week and being able to just kind of to sit here as God is speaking uh, his word through each of you has been an encouragement to me. And so I've, I've really enjoyed the co-teaching aspect of this series. Yeah, to, not just that, but to hear uh, stories come from our people, just yeah. people rededicating their life to Jesus, people uh, coming out of the woodworks to serve, to whether it's distributing food or, or praying more, like you were mentioning last week on our social media outlets. Uh, and for me personally, it's to see the unity of the churches come together, like uh a lot of people don't know what goes, you know, behind the scenes of preparing a sermon or just a service. And it's just been a whole brand new learning curve to, you know, a lot of people learning, you know, media and video and stuff like that. And, you know, to see it last week just culminate at the, the rice party and, yeah, you know, awesome. DJ promote. So <laughs> uh, man, to see the Easter Bunny Never come to my it, house, I mean, that's, that's an amazing uh, thing. <laughs> Easter Bunny <laughs> Springs. By the way, if this series has been impacting you, well, you let us know. You can yeah. go to the comments section there. You can let us know there. But if you want to be more specific, you can fill out one of the connection cards that's uh, available to you at the comments section right now. And let us know how God has been using this series to impact your life during this season. That would be very important for us to know. Yeah, and coming out of last week, the celebration of Easter, the resurrection of Christ, it feels like maybe a natural close to the series but we're continuing the series today because when we look at the life of Jesus, when he came back from the grave, he didn't rise from the dead and then leave. He stuck around uh, with his disciples, with his followers, and he spent time with them. And he taught them how to live in light of this new reality, the reality of the resurrection. And he taught them uh, what Eugene Peterson, a pastor and theologian, has coined, how to practice the resurrection. So that's what we're going to look at today. Yeah, the passage that we're going to read from today comes out of the Gospel of John, chapter 21. And it's uh, one of the encounters that Jesus had with his disciples after the resurrection. Uh, he has this encounter with the disciples at the beach of Tiberias in the Sea of Galilee. And I had the opportunity a couple years ago with some of you to be there. And I remember going into that beach early in the morning, uh, you know, the exact time that Jesus actually met with the disciples in this passage. And I was just so moved to believe that uh, the resurrected Christ had walked that beach and had spent time with his disciples. And the message of this passage was so impactful to me that even before I started doing the Bible study there on John 21, I, I had tears in my eyes. I started crying. 
Uh, so will you read it with me? It's uh, John 21. We're going to read from verses 1 through 17. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. As we think about what practicing the resurrection looks like, this passage gives us three ways. First, it means living a life in the supernatural. It means living a life of service. And it means living a life of grace. Well, let me take the first one. <laughs> living a life in the supernatural. There, there's two unique miracles that are recorded here in the Gospels. And they both uh, involve fishing trips. One is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke 5, and the other is right here after the resurrection, right at the end of the chapter. And so, and in both stories, you've got fishermen who understand, you know, their craft. They know what they're doing. They, they cast their nets. They're, they're on their boats. They know what they're doing. And in both stories, the sun comes up and they get nothing. They catch absolutely nothing. 
And in both stories, someone who really doesn't know anything about fishing, uh, humanly speaking, gives them some counterintuitive instructions uh, that really doesn't make any sense. Jesus tells them in Luke 5, go out into the deep, cast your net. And he tells them here, you know, toss a net to the other side of the boat uh, uh, for a catch. And in both of these stories, the nets fill up with fish. And Peter, aside from Jesus, right, Peter is front and center as a front and center character in the story. Listen to what he says in Luke's gospel, uh, the first event, Luke 5, 8. He says, when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, oh, Lord, please leave me. I I I'm such a sinful man. In other words, get away from me, Lord. I don't want you to see me this way. Uh, I'm ashamed. I'm an absolute failure. I don't know what I'm doing. But in the second story, Peter looks at the shore, and it's Jesus. And this time, he recognizes how deep his failure really is. I can just imagine, uh, imagine him remembering, right, remembering when he told Jesus, hey, Jesus, I'll never deny you. Hey, Jesus, I would even die for you. I, I, I can imagine him just kind of uh, uh, remembering before they killed Jesus, they're, them locking eyes in the courtyard, right, and, and denying knowing Jesus. And now he hears John say, hey, it's the master. It's the Lord. And he immediately knows, he immediately remembers, and he doesn't waste any time. Verse 7, it says he jumps in the water. He swims about 100 yards for all he's worth, not away from Jesus, but this time he's moving toward Jesus. He's dragging himself into the shore. He's dripping wet, waves crushing on him, sand all over his prime. The Bible says he's in his underwear. He's in his own. He takes off the cloak. He dives in. He's in his underwear. This is an amazing picture of how, of how demoralizing failure and how demoralizing discouragement can be down to your last underwear kind of failure. And, and as bad as failure and as bad as discouragement can be, we can do worse than failure. We can actually succeed without ever recognizing who is the true source of our success. This is the question that Jesus asked him in verse 5. Hey, you guys caught Anything? How you guys doing? You catch anything? No. It's designed to confront, right, to bring home the reality of their failure. And here's why this matters, because when God challenges our failed attempts at self-sufficiency, our failed attempts at self-efforts, its motive is never to rub it in our faces. It's never to rub it in our noses. His motive is always that of awakening in us a renewed dependence on him, a life, right? We need to constantly be reminded that a life lived in the power of the resurrection is a life that is lived by faith and it's not lived by sight. Why? Because our sufficiency will always fail. We can never be the, the fathers that we're meant to be apart from Christ. We can never be the husbands or the spouses or the parents that we're meant to be apart from Christ. We can never be the neighbors, the church members. We can't even be the person that God is calling us to be apart from Jesus. Without Jesus, we're absolutely powerless to do the work that life requires. Our sufficiency always fails. His never fails. And so, so living the supernatural life is a counterintuitive thing. It's, a, it's as counterintuitive as these uh, fishing instructions here because it's not about living this, this Hercules life, this incredible Hulk life. It's not about, it ain't even about living that Hulk Hogan life. A lot of people, we can't even fake it like Hulk Hogan, right? It's, it's not about our strengths. It's not about our self-sufficiency. In fact, notice that Jesus takes care of everything that they need. They were laboring ineffectively for fish, and when they arrived on the shore, Carter, what did Jesus have already waiting for them? Fish. And what else? Bread. Fish and bread. You know what that is to a Cuban? That's a minuta sandwich. That's panko. You ever had a panko minuta? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You did? Okay. That's, that's good. That's good. These guys were tired. I don't know if they have that in Brazil. But these guys were tired from a cold night on the lake. Jesus had a fire ready to comfort them, ready to warm them. And if they were anything like me, they're, I, I, I hate fishing. I'm like, if I ever go fishing, 
maybe one fish, God, if I can catch one fish, Jesus fills their nets to the full. And it's only when we recognize our need, church, when you recognize your need, when we recognize our need, that is the evidence of God's supply in waiting. Our lack, when we realize that when we lack, God's, listen, God's got our back. He has our supply. He is our provision. Like the psalmist says, he is God, you are my portion. And while everybody's being affected by this crisis, waiting, you know, probably thinking, how do, all right, how do, how do I practice resurrection in you know, my room or my house? How do, I, how do I live this life? How can I live with the expectation that God is always going to have my back? Or that, that God's going to supply, you know, every need. How, how do I believe that God is, is not a failure? You know, have you seen my house lately, God? You know, really? You know, and it's only, we can only learn uh, through lessons. And the greatest lessons are the ones that affect how we live. And the lessons that the disciples learned here 2,000 years ago are timeless. They're absolutely timeless. They're still speaking to us today through God's inspired word. God, through his word, is still saying three things. Apart from me, you're powerless. Aided by me, you're productive. And the third thing is, aware of me, you'll become passionate. Peter is passionate. He's a passionate guy. He just, I don't know whether he did the butterfly stroke or the backstroke or the breaststroke. He just swam faster than uh, Usain Bolt, like like lightning speed. You mean like, like he, Michael Phelps? Oh, yeah, that, that guy. <laughs> yeah, like I'm sorry, Michael I haven't Phelps. seen sports in a while. <laughs> Get my sports illustrations wrong. Hey, I'm trying to be counterintuitive. Yeah. Like Christ? <laughs> yeah, that, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Usain Bolt and Michael Phelps mixed together. That, that works perfect. <laughs> no, that, that's, that, that's so good, Sam, that practicing the resurrection is living in the supernatural. is this counterintuitive way of living. Uh, and it's also a, a life of service. It's living a life of service, which in many ways is also counterintuitive. The thing that stands out to me in this passage is that the disciples, the seven of them in the boat, that they follow Jesus' instruction when they don't even know who they're speaking with, right? They're coming in from a long night of fishing. They've caught nothing. They're tired. They're exhausted. They're hungry. And a stranger, they assume is a stranger on the beach, asks them, have they caught anything? And says, throw the net on the other side. So maybe they think, maybe this guy knows something that we don't know. They're exhausted, desperate. They throw the net on the other side. And they begin to pull in the net and it is so full, they can't pull the amount of fish into the boat. They have to drag it along the side. And it says that there's actually 153 fish in there. A lot of fish. Now, you mentioned, Sam, that you don't like fishing. I don't like fishing either. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> Why would I go spend time to do, to do a task that I may not accomplish? Like, I'm going to go spend five hours, and I may not actually accomplish the task of catching a fish. That's a waste of time to me. And some of you that love fishing out there, you're thinking, well, that's the whole point. You know, you're out there. You're trying. You may not. And if that is the point, then I see no point. You feel me? <laughs> doesn't make any sense at all. But when I was a kid, I actually liked fishing more. I think it's all the failed attempts as a child has now scarred me that I don't like it now. But what I used to love is cast netting. Have you ever done cast netting before? I don't like to fish. So. Well, this is this is fun. This is like ninja fishing, okay? So this is similar to what they would have been doing here in the boat where you take a, a cast net and you wrap it up in your arms and you hold it a certain way. And when you see some fish swimming on the surface, you throw it and spin it so it opens in the air, lands on the school of fish, and then you pull it in. I used to love doing this. This was so fun. You mostly catch bait fish. We begin to pull it in. And I remember if you caught 10 fish, if you caught... 15 fish in one cast. I mean, that's a lot of fish. And it was heavy. It was exhausting to pull it up onto the shore on the seawall. And here, it's 153.
three fish full, as you referenced, Sam. And they're coming to shore, and John is about 100 yards away, and John sees, and he recognizes somehow that it's Jesus. He says, it's the Lord, and Peter, as you mentioned, runs in, and he goes up, and they eventually all get there, dragging the fish up to the shore, and Jesus is there with a charcoal fire, already cooking fish. They bring the fish up, and they begin to add them to the fire. And it says at this point, they all actually recognize that this is Jesus. They don't say it, but they recognize that it's Jesus. And I'm thinking when I read this text, why didn't they know that it was him? Was it because they were too far away? Was it because he was disguising himself similar to what happened when he came back from the grave and Mary didn't recognize him, thought he was a gardener? Is it some type of disguise? What is it? I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. But we do know that As they're sitting by the fire, they all recognize and understand that they are eating breakfast with Jesus, fish for breakfast. You're like, that's the weirdest thing ever. But if the God of the universe cooks you fish for breakfast, you eat it. It's the best fish you've ever had. So they're eating, and they're beginning to notice and piece things together. As you mentioned, Sam, this story has happened before in a slightly different way. I bet you that's beginning to run through their mind. They're sitting at the table, and as Jesus is cooking the fish, they're probably noticing his mannerisms. They're noticing the way he cooks the fish, and it's signaling to them again and reinforcing we're, we're sitting with Christ again at the table. Uh, Robert Karras is a, a biblical scholar who says that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. I mean, they spend a lot of time eating. But there are some really specific details that stand out that I have to imagine signaled things to them that was striking. And the first one is the one that I mentioned about the catching of the fish. There was 153 of them. They pull them out and they count them, and it says that none were lost. Why does John put 153? Why does he say that? Why doesn't he just say there was a lot of fish or there was 100 or so fish? Why does he detail it? Biblical scholars will argue on why, but you know, some say it's because he wants people to know that this is an eyewitness account, that he's right there. He saw that it was 153. You can trust that. St. Augustine said that this is a triangular number. So this is like super nerdy if you're really into this. He, he said that if you look at the number, as you add it up all the way down, there's actually 17 rows. So you start at the top of the triangle, one, and then two, three, four, five, six, all the way down. St. Augustine is the only one that would do this. So it breaks down to 17. And then he goes and says that the 17 stands for the Ten Commandments and then seven for the Holy Spirit. You're like, this is inception in the Bible. This is... Maybe that's the case. Allegorical. Unbelievable. (laughs) And then Jerome, who was an ancient church uh, theologian and and church father, he says that Greek zoologists at this time identified that there were 153 fish species. That's all they knew about. So it represents everyone, all types. Now, which one is it? Certainly it's an eyewitness account. John was there. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law through his life, death, and resurrection. He fulfilled the law, and he supplies us with the Holy Spirit through faith in him to live a new reality of practicing the resurrection. So maybe the inception in the Bible, the triangular number, is true. Jesus invites all people to himself of all classes, all races, all different types of people are invited into his family. So maybe that's true as well. Maybe they're all true, and he's pointing and bringing all these things together to reveal something very profound to them. And that is that he's calling them to a life of service. And here's why. They were here not long ago with Jesus, and they were serving people. There was a crowd of 5,000 or more that they were spending time with. Jesus was teaching to them. And at the end of the day, they started to get hungry. 
And the disciples are concerned. They are very pragmatic. Hey, we don't have enough food. We don't have any money to go buy food. How are we going to serve these people? And a little boy comes up with what? He comes up with two fish and five loaves. And Jesus takes it and he multiplies it. And he feeds and he serves everyone there that's in need. So much so that there's leftovers. Gathers up the leftovers in 12 baskets so that none is wasted. 12 baskets representing the 12 tribes of Israel and how God invites all people as diverse his kingdom, just like the 153 fish could represent all types of fish. He does this, and it's signifying to the disciples that this is the call for them to practice resurrection by serving people. Because when he serves the 5,000, he first serves bread before fish. In this story, everything's about the fish. But then when they sit down, he serves, it says, bread first. And then the fish. And I have to believe that these things are coming together for them. Maybe they came together later. That Jesus is calling them to practice the resurrection by serving people. By not just going back to normal everyday life like it seems that they did. They just went back to where they're from. They went back to fishing. And Jesus says, you're called to cast your net. You're called to fish. You see, practicing the resurrection means that we're called to cast our net. And we don't cast a net of law. We don't cast a net of judgment. We cast a net that is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. We cast a net of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. And we don't leave anyone out. In fact, God invites all people to him. All types of people he gathers in and he pulls in and he calls us to cast. And sometimes we feel rendered powerless because we feel like we've been fruitless and we've been trying. And I've tried so many times to reach out to that person and to care for that person and to serve that person. And I'm one person. What kind of difference could I make? Well, see, we're not the one that actually supplies the resurrection power. We're just called to practice. We're just called to cast. And so, church, my question for you is who is God calling you to cast your net towards? How is he calling you to cast your net? How is he calling you to love and to serve in this time and in this season. You may feel hopeless, you may feel powerless, and God may be calling you to say, just, just throw it to the other side. He's going to supply the catch. He's going to supply the fish. And he brings all people to himself, and he calls us to cast and to serve and to not forsake that and go back to everyday life. Through Christ, we're changed to practice the resurrection through serving. You know, another thing about the nets is that they represent uh, work. That was, yeah. their, that was their job. You know, they were fishermen even before Jesus called them to be his followers and disciples. And so here's another angle of, uh, 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 this from this point that you were making, Carter. You know, we are to cast our nets, our work, to Jesus. Yeah. That, that's what empowers us to really uh, serve and to live in the supernatural. See, practicing the resurrection means uh, living a life of grace. So... They finish eating, the text tells us in, in verse uh, 16, and, uh, and Jesus now turns his focus to Simon Peter, and he has a conversation, a very intimate uh, conversation with uh, the apostle Peter. And in that conversation, as we read in the text, uh, Jesus asks Peter three times the same question or the same set of questions. Uh, do you love me? Will you take care of my sheep, my lambs? Will you, feel, will you feed my lambs? Do you love me? Will you tend my sheep? Do you love me again? And will you tend, will you lead my sheep? Three times. Now, Sam already alluded to that in his point, but 
the backstory is before the resurrection, during the uh, celebration of the Passover with the disciples, the night that Jesus actually was betrayed, there's a moment uh, in that evening that Jesus gathers the disciples and he says, you know, when things get tough, when persecution hits, when they come for me, all of you guys will abandon me. And the text tells us that Peter is extremely offended by that statement of Jesus. And he says to Jesus, I don't care if all of them abandon you, but I for sure will never abandon you. To which Jesus looks at Peter again and says, yeah, sure. By the time that the rooster crows a second time from this moment to tomorrow morning, you all have denied me three times. And it, isn't it interesting that to the one that had denied Jesus three times, he asks him three times, do you love me? It's beautiful because uh, this moment and what Jesus is doing here is filled with grace. I'm so glad that Jesus is not like us. So glad that Jesus is not like me. I'm an Enneagram 8. It's a personality test if you don't know what uh, the Enneagram is. But, you know, uh, if you're an Enneagram 8 like myself, your greatest fear is to be betrayed by others. Uh, that explains why sometimes I'm cynical towards people because I'm protecting myself from being betrayed. That's why sometimes I even have difficulties in developing depth in relationships because I'm afraid of, of being disappointed and betrayed by others. And if someone had done this to me, like one of my pastors or one of my staff, I could see myself just using this opportunity to call them out. If I was in Jesus's place right here, I could see myself saying, man, what a backstabber you are. I called you. I loved on you. I spent three years with you, gave my life for you. I told you that you were going to deny me, and you still did it. I want nothing to do with you. I will never trust you again with anything. I'm never going to give you a job. You can stick around, but I'm never going to give you a job. I'm not going to trust you anymore. But instead, at Jesus, not only does he not condemn Peter, he redeems Peter, but he doesn't leave Peter on the bench he puts him in charge. You know, he gives Peter the opportunity to redeem himself. For every denial, Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to say, I love you. He's writing off all his wrongs. And the reason why Jesus can do that is because on the cross, Peter had been perfectly redeemed. And since we're doing allegory here today, <laughs> I'm going to do my share of allegories here. He says it to Peter three times. He asks Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then Peter says, yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. It's like if Jesus is saying on the cross, I have forgiven your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. You have been perfectly redeemed. And the beauty of this in this passage is the only people that have the right to sit with Jesus and to break bread with Jesus 
are the ones that have acknowledged their need for Jesus. I believe that this moment that Jesus has here with Peter, you know, is very similar to that moment in Les Mis, or Les Mis, Les Mis, Les Mis. I think that's the right pronunciation. Where uh, Jean Valjean is, uh, is in this priest's house who takes him in after he gets out of jail. And the priest, you know, feeds him and gives him shelter. And in the middle of the night, he steals uh, the, the, the priest's silverware and candlesticks. And he's caught by the cops. And he's brought back to the priest. And the cops say to the priest, hey, we found these objects with this man. He's uh, next con, and we believe that these are yours. And the priest now has an opportunity to say, you ungrateful person. I loved you. I gave you shelter, just like this passage here. And yet he says, no, I have given him. I, yeah, you take it, and you use this for good to restart your life. <laughs> That's what Jesus is doing here with Peter. And Peter knows this. He acknowledges this. And like I said, not only does Jesus not condemn Peter but redeem Peter, but Jesus doesn't put Peter on the bench but puts him in charge. And that's, I think, the meaning of the whole idea here of lambs and, uh, and sheep, lambs and sheep. Um, lambs, you know, Jesus is saying, I'm going to allow you to, to lead my flock from the youngest ones, the, uh, the, the most immature, the baby ones in the faith, to the sheep, to the most mature. And you're going to do that not only by feeding them my word, but by providing them guidance and wisdom and leadership to the movement that's going to follow the resurrection. And uh, to me, that, that, that is just beautiful because it just gives us a picture that Jesus said, your ministry is going to be very comprehensive. I'm going to entrust you with something big. You were the greatest betrayer, but I'm going to give you the greatest responsibility. Only the ones that have been on the receiving end of grace are, are the ones that can dispense and, and give grace uh, to others. Jesus is saying to Peter, look, I, I am the ultimate shepherd, and I have given my life for my sheep, for my flock, and I'm going to share my burden with you to be a shepherd as well. And one day, Peter, you will be asked to lay down your life for the flock. That's what the verses that follow verse 17 are all about. Mm -hmm. Jesus is talking about Peter's death. And he's asking Peter, oh, will you be ready for that? And in and, and so many ways, uh, what Jesus is saying to Peter and what he's saying to us is that the only way that we would be ready to lead with such level of grace, of sacrificial grace towards others, even to those that have hurt us or persecute us or have betrayed us, is if we remember the grace that has been lavished on us on the cross, where Jesus, the shepherd, became sheep, became a lamb on our behalf, so that we would receive the atonement for our sins and the acceptance of God. See, leading sheep or leading in any way is a sacrificial task. It's not easy to lead sheep. I remember Elizabeth Elliot at some point saying, you know, uh, um, being a shepherd is uh, one of the most uh, unfulfilling uh, jobs that there is 
because you get no recognition, no appreciation from the sheep. They don't even acknowledge that you exist. Now, if you feed your dog, if you feed your cat, they will acknowledge you. They'll come, they'll rub their bodies against your legs, or they'll come and, you know, they'll lick you, right? Uh, your kids will appreciate you, but, but sheep, they don't acknowledge you. And you need to have a posture of grace that you can only get from the cross in order to serve this way. Now, now in, in this season, uh, we need leaders that will lead from a standpoint of grace, that will practice the resurrection that way, that will be forgiving, that will be patient towards others. You know, you're spending all your days at home with your kids and your spouse, and I'm sure, man, the quarantine quarrels <laughs> have increased. They're real, Sam. Went back to the, the, the first sermon that we preached in this format. And you have to extend patience. When you extend patience and when you are forgiving, you are giving grace to people. When you, in a season such as this, act radically generous towards the needs of others that are losing their jobs, that are getting sick, that um, are, are emotionally suffering, when you act radically generous on their behalf, you are leading out of grace. You are practicing the resurrection in the context of, of leadership. And you know what's beautiful is that when you do that, I think Jesus is trying to say this to Peter and to the disciples and to us here today, that when you and I do this, when you and I extend grace to others, resurrections, small little resurrections take place. When you act in a forgiving manner, a little resurrection happens in that relationship. When you act patiently with others, a little resurrection happens in people's lives. When you act radically generous, a little resurrection happens in someone's life. There is, a, there is an injection of hope. And that is what the power of the resurrection is all about. And that's what practicing the resurrection is all about. You know, I'm thinking about the aftermath of this crisis. There's going to be so many needs. You know, people are, are saying it's going to take years or months. I don't know how long it's going to take to put things back together. What is it going to take to put things back together in its place? People that are practicing the resurrection, mm -hmm. that are living the supernatural, that are living lives of service, that are living lives of grace. So church, let's do this. Let's practice the resurrection together. Amen. Just thinking as you were talking, Felipe, about Peter, um, I think there's a lot of people that feel a lot like Peter, that resonate with how he feels. He feels uh, a sense of shame. Maybe, you know, as you mentioned, Sam, uh, there's a lot of you that don't feel like you would jump out of the boat and swim to Jesus. There's so much shame. There's so much guilt. And there's this feeling like I've been constantly denying Christ. I've been rejecting him. I've been turning from him. I've been kind of checking in. Maybe this is your, your first time in a long time uh, coming to church online. And uh, I want to in invite you, if that's you, if you feel like, man, I, I've been denying Christ. I have been totally uh, passive in my faith. I, I feel a sense of shame and guilt. 
You know, the beauty of Christ is that he invites us to him as a gift. He doesn't ask us to earn it or to deserve it. He just invites us in. And he invites us in through prayer to surrender our lives before him and to see him resurrect us and our heart and our soul to him. So I want to read, actually, a, an ancient prayer by uh, Ambrose of Milan. It's a simple prayer. But if that's you, I want to invite you even now, where, wherever you are, to pray this prayer with me and to trust and believe that God can resurrect maybe a dead or dying heart and, and a soul to him where you can experience that resurrecting power in your life. So will you pray this with me? O Lord, who has mercy upon all, take away from me my sins and mercifully kindle in me the fire of the Holy Spirit. Take away from me the heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh, a heart to love, and adore you, a heart to delight in you, to follow and to enjoy you. For Christ's sake, amen.